Church is a community and movement, a fellowship of discovery. We desire to love well and serve often, while together we explore the adventurous love story of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. I want to shout out my four kids right here in the front row. Well done. Well done. All right, now this part, this next half hour, look at me, is going to be tough. All right, this is the boring stuff, all right? I understand that. It's totally okay. Your job is to keep your parents awake, all right? Can you do that for me? All right, fantastic. If you start nodding off, I might say something, all right? Because just look interested. That's, that's, only, that's the only difference between you and the adults in the room is they've mastered the art of looking interested, okay? So why not start now? Hey everybody, my name is Mike. Welcome to our church community. We're so delighted you're here, particularly if you are new. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We have a fire. Um, evidently it's brisk outside. Um, I put on my uh, winter flip-flops and it is uh, just really nice. Anyway, um, I'm so glad you're here. We're in the middle of a series of conversations that we are calling for all the people. That comes from a, a line um, in Luke where the angels announced to the shepherds, this is good news of great joy for all the people. And, and the reason that little addendum was attached to that announcement was because the word for good news was a Roman word, and it meant good news only for Romans. But this was good news for everybody. And so we've been looking at kind of the everybody-ness of this good news. And last week, uh, we looked at Matthew's like, lineage of Jesus. Notice that there are five women mentioned. And these women are particularly heroic uh, as they stand out. And it's, and it's relatively uncommon. I mean, not relatively, but very uncommon that they would be included in a lineage uh, such as this. And so we looked at four of the five, Rahab, Bathsheba, um, uh, who else? Rahab, Bathsheba, Tamar, Ruth. Man, let's get... Hey, what time are Christmas Eve services? Four and six. Yeah, that's right. And what time? Skippers, good morning. What time is the one service next week? It's 10. You'll be here. Yes, it's 10. Boom! Skippers, I just want to welcome you. Oh, is that, okay, listen, God, God is always on time, you don't, so you don't have to be, you know what I'm saying, that's how that, that's how that works. All right, anyway, we are going to look at the fifth of five women listed in the genealogy, we're going to look at Mary, and we're going to spend a lot of time in her story this morning, so if you want to follow along, you can follow along on screens, you can go to Luke, um, Luke, as we say in the, in the business, that's how it's pronounced in Greek, Luke. Um, God is your father. Oh, okay. I know, awful. All right, so we encounter, thanks, Nate. So big Nate's home from college. Yep, sweet Hannah's got new jeans on today. Very excited. We got some Millards and a Lind thrown in in sandwich, so well done. But you guys are much better looking. All right, over here. Um, so we encounter Mary... After a big announcement, the book of Luke opens with kind of a prologue, and then there's a big announcement that's given to a man named Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. He's elderly. His wife cannot have kids. And um, Zechariah is told that they are, this barren couple, they're going to give birth to a son, and we know him as John the Baptist. And um, Zechariah doesn't respond 
entirely appropriately and asks for a sign. And the angel says, well, I'll give you a sign. You're not going to speak for nine months during this whole pregnancy. And so his wife, Elizabeth, got two pieces of good news that day. Um, Good news, number one, you're going to have a child. Good news, number two, your husband can't talk about it for nine months. So it was indeed good news of great joy for Elizabeth. And then we, we are immediately introduced to somebody named Mary. So if you would, there we go. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Nazareth, Nazareth is, um, what would, I don't know the Tennessee equivalent. The California equivalent of Nazareth was Fresno. Uh, a place, <laughs> did that hit home with somebody over there? Uh, no, Nazareth, it was, it was not mentioned in any of the ancient rabbinical 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 writings or any of uh, some of the history stuff that people had access to. So up until about 80 years ago, people thought Nazareth was totally made up. It was of such ordinary commonality that it was never, ever, ever worthy of note as a little town of about 200 people. So the fact that the angel Gabriel, it's not surprising that Gabriel shows up to a man who is a priest in the temple. It is a bit surprising that Gabriel shows up Uh, to a young lady, to a young woman, excuse me, who is living in Nazareth. She is a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Now, let's talk about pledged to be married. Kids, this will be relevant someday. Um, Pledged to be married means um, that two families had agreed to enter into a covenant relationship. Typically, as soon as the women hit menstruation, um, they were pledged to be married. So this is like 11 to 13, okay, super, super young. And then for the men, 17 to 18, roughly, is the average age. And a betrothal, you would have a formal ceremony, and then the betrothal period was about a year. And during that year, you were called husband and wife. If one of you died, the other was a widow or a widower. Um, you, were, you could commit adultery on the other, but you were not allowed to live in the same space or to have intimate relations during that year. All right? This was a year where the, the woman would learn domestic um, duties and the man would be building a place attached to his father's house where they would live. And so this betrothal period was legally binding and um, it, was a, it was a really big deal, much different than our sort of engagement before marriage these days. This was something that was super significant. So we meet a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. Now, if you're reading this text kind of with first century ears on, the, is there anything in the text that gives you an idea that she's highly favored? Is there anything? Mary was the most common name in the first century for girls. She lives in a a city of nothing, and the only thing distinctive about her is she's not yet married. Is there anything that would clue you into her highly favored status? No, not at all. So it's nothing that she's done. It's just the grace of God that makes her highly favored. The Lord is with you, Gabriel continues. Mary was greatly troubled. (laughs) (laughs) at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Remember, angels always have to say, do not be afraid. All right, that's their first line always. They're not precious moments, figurines. (laughs) 
Um, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus, which means God's salvation. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. A pretty epic promise. Mary asks, okay, not like give me a sign that this is true like Zechariah did. She says, well, how's that going to work exactly since I am a virgin? Next. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the, Holy, of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born to will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was once said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. Now, um, and then, and then um, the angel says, for the, no word from God will ever fail. And then Mary responds with this beautiful, beautiful Response, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Now, we, we read the Christmas story as such Americans. It's the sanitized, like, tinselly version of a really messy, ugly story. And so Mary is 11 to 13, all right? And she turns out to be pregnant during a betrothal period, and Joseph is clearly not the father. How does that work in a town of 200 people? Any of you grew up in small towns? Does everybody kind of know this? I mean, and, and, and back then, because there was such importance attached to bloodlines, any circumstances around a, a birth that would cause it to be illegitimate or questionable resulted usually in the casting out of that person from... The, their community. And not only that, but because she sinned in this way, she would not be married the rest of her life. I mean, this was like, we read this and like, oh yeah, it's cute, the Christmas story and Linus, you know, sounds great when he reads this. But you're going, hold on a second. This, this is really disruptive and almost offensive to Mary and to Joseph in a small town where the stigma would have been attached to them pretty quickly. And so it's not surprising Mary leaves and visits the only person in the world who will believe her, Elizabeth, right? Because Elizabeth just saw this great miracle, and uh, so the only one that's going to believe her is Elizabeth. So she goes there, and then we all know the the story of the child being born. Next, we go to Luke chapter 2, and now we encounter Mary and Joseph as they're going to the temple to dedicate their firstborn, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Um, As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. The reason Luke includes that is he wants us to know that Mary and Joseph, even though they're teenagers, they are Torah observant. They are true Israelites. The salvation that's coming to Israel comes from Israel. And they're, they're there also to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. And then, and then Luke quotes from Leviticus, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, because we're not super familiar with Leviticus, the reason Luke includes that is because if you could not afford a regular sacrifice, you could offer two birds. So what's that tell us about Joseph and Mary? That they were very poor. All right? Two teenagers in scandalous circumstances, very poor, all right? That's the picture we're getting of this whole circumstance. Now, waiting in the temple area, there was a man named 
Simeon, who was righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him. We're reading the Bible over here, Hannah. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the, the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. And this is where I need you to focus on these next few sentences. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I may die now because you promised I would see the Messiah before I die. Now I've seen the Messiah. I have seen your salvation, which is literally what the name Jesus means which you've prepared in the sight of all the nations, light for the revelation to the Gentiles, for revelation to the Gentiles, and to the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to who? He doesn't address Joseph, right? Which is significant for later in the story. But then notice what he says. To Mary, this child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. Those who believe in him will rise in God's sight. Those who do not will fall in God's sight. And he will be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then notice this line, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, this is a part of the story that never shows up on Christmas cards, right? Because up until now, it's been kind of a mixed bag for Mary, right? I mean, she gets, she gets this incredible announcement, but it's attached to scandalous circumstances. And then she's at the temple, and this guy comes up and blesses this child as the Messiah, and then just looks at Mary and says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And when you think about a sword, don't think of like a fencing rapier with a little bitty point. The sword here is a broad sword, and the image is of being run through with a sword. So it's an expression of unimaginable grief and sorrow that's going to accompany this birth that Mary was highly favored to receive. So we just want to look at some examples of her life with Jesus and reflect on what that means. So, Next, we'll go to when Jesus is 12, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover. Why is that important? Because they were Torah observant. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. When Jesus was 12 and has, had been bar mitzvahed, he got to go to celebrate the festival as an adult. After the festival was over... While his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. How many of you have lost kids? I have. Hannah knows this. I forgot her. Yep, that explains a lot. Some of you are judging me right now, and that's fine. But Jesus' parents did it too. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. That's all I'm saying. Thinking, thinking he was in their company. They traveled on for a day. Now, they were traveling in huge caravans, all right? So, I mean, it is a little understandable that they didn't recognize it right away. But you can imagine the, like, conversation, right? Every parent's had this conversation one time or another. Where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. 
well, I thought he was with you, right? I mean, and, and you realize, oh, we've lost the Messiah of the world. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, and moms, don't even pretend like you haven't used this tone. Okay? They were astonished. And astonished there does not mean in the good sense. All right? His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked. Didn't you know I had to be in what? My father's house. Now, the punch was Mary saying, your father and I were looking for you. And Jesus replying, but I had to be at my father's house. Do you see how that would have stung? Jesus, even at 12, recognized that Joseph wasn't his dad and wasn't meaning to insult his parents. But that flip from your father, no, my father is actually God, that's, that, that's a little bit of a stinger, wouldn't you agree? I mean, parents, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that adds up. Or, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching his first sermon in his hometown. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day went to the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, and then he quotes from this new Exodus passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom from prisoners, for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. An amazing sermon. And he rolled the, the scroll back up, handed it to the attendant, and then everyone was looking at him, and he looks at everybody and says, Today, this promise of new Exodus is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen, except that's not what they said initially they were like, oh, this is great. But then Jesus begins, and we won't look at this, but he rebukes them and tells them two examples of when God, the heart of Israel was so hard, God turned away to Gentile outsiders to work. And he, this is a foreshadow of something we'll read later about his hometown hardening itself to him. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow on of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. I've had some bad sermons, ladies and gentlemen. I'm still alive. And then I love this. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. And we're just like, oh, look, a cute little story. But where did this take place? What city? Nazareth, his hometown. Who still lived there? Mary did. What's it like for Mary to see her friends and neighbors attempt to throw her son off a cliff and then he leaves and she stays there? Do you think every now and again she wondered at Simeon's words and a sword will pierce your own soul too? Or in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is crowded into a house. 
His mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside. Notice, no mention of Joseph. Okay, so we think Joseph died when Jesus was young, after the age of 12, but before his public ministry at 30. So she's a single mom. My mother and brothers, Jesus replied. So he, he's, he hears, my, his mother and brothers are outside. And he says instead, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. Moms, how would you, how would you respond to being told that? Right? I, I wonder if Mary thought, oh, is this what it means to be highly favored? And Jesus wasn't saying he didn't have an earthly mother. He was just saying, the movement I'm about creates bonds that are even stronger than family. Or in Mark chapter 6, he's back in his hometown. Jesus left there, went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came and began to teach, many were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they said. What's the wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Now, in the first century, to be son of your mother was an insult. Okay, you were always known as the son of your father, even if your father had died. So literally, your surname in the first century was Ben, and then your father's name. Ben is son of. So Jesus was Jesus, son of Joseph. That was his full name. Jesus ben Yosef. But when, he, when he's, he's insulted, when they say, aren't you Mary's boy? Now again, I know that's totally ridiculous to us, but that was how you insulted somebody. And notice, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and uh, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they what? They took offense. So not only at one point did they try to throw him off a cliff, but they mocked him and rejected him. And here's Mary. Right? Or John chapter 7. We read this little tidbit about Jesus' family. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. Galilee's in the northern region, and it's not as sparsely, or it is sparsely populated compared to Judea, which is where Jerusalem was. Jesus did not want to go to Judea in the south because the Jewish leaders were there looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles were near, Jesus' brother said to him, now you should read this as sarcasm and mockery, okay? They said, why don't you leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do? No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, Jesus. Since you were doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then notice, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So that would make for some interesting dinner conversation, wouldn't you agree? So think about, think about from Mary's perspective, hey, you're going to be mother to the Messiah, and a sword will pierce your own soul. Scandalous circumstances around his birth, poverty, the shame and dishonor of being a mother that, uh, of, a, of a child that could have been illegitimate. Jesus almost publicly saying, yes, those ties aren't as important. Jesus being thrown off or uh, attempted, they attempted to throw him off a cliff in his hometown. I mean, these, you can just imagine these circumstances keep adding up until horribly and ultimately they, they, they sort of combine into John 19 when Mary is standing at the foot of the cross. I mean, as a parent, I can't imagine burying a child, let alone, I cannot imagine Mary, it, 
She was promised this was the Messiah. Gabriel told her, Simeon prophesied it, and this is where that promise has led. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple who he loved, which is John's very humble reference to himself, When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Mary is a single mom at this point. She's standing at the foot of her son as he is being publicly humiliated through crucifixion, the most socially shameful way of being tortured to death. All thought of Messiah has disappeared and she's now just a mom grieving over the torture of her child. Because she's single, Jesus has to arrange for her care and looks at John and says, please take care of her. And and I just wonder, I mean, how could Mary not think of those words? And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Oh, I can't even imagine. And thankfully, the story doesn't end there. But I just want to pause at that moment. I just can't imagine the inexhaustible grief and sorrow. Mary, for us, is somebody who's got a little halo, and she's got the haloed baby Jesus, and she doesn't look like she's given birth and ridden on a donkey for days. I mean, she looks great, right? And this is great and beatific. And and here's the son, Jesus, not crying, you know, not with a weird-shaped head or any of the weird scaly stuff on him and you know he just it's and 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 that is how americans celebrate this story and we celebrate it in the spectacular and in the glorious and in the you know in in the triumphant and it's not that you it's not when you make it that you're not even telling the biblical story the birth of jesus comes in the middle of um, unimaginable grief and sorrow and social shame And yet, and yet, imagine what this is like in the book of Acts. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. Jesus had risen from the dead and he descended into heaven. The apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to a room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women. Women, and who? And Mary, the mother of Jesus. And with his who? And with his brothers. And then as we know, the Holy Spirit descends upon that group of 120 people and the movement that bears the name of Mary's son is born. Now, was her yes way back at the beginning of the story worth it? Yeah. But did it come at great cost? It did. There's this thing we say in Christian circles sometimes. The safest place to be is in God's will. Have you heard this at all? Anyone ever heard this? Maybe it's an old, no, nothing? Okay. Well, I just said it and I'm going to, make fun of it, all right? So some people have said, some people not here 
kids have said this, and it's not true. Okay? Because in, in America, we value any gospel that promises us comfort, convenience, and safety. And so obviously Jesus gets hijacked by consumerism into a big infomercial for Jesus, right? And so, I mean, and literally so often the way we preach the message of Jesus and celebrate the message of this season is like an infomercial. And I love infomercials. I am fascinated. Like there's no way, there's no way that boat is gonna float with flex seal on it. And then bam, it floats. I mean, there's just, there's no way. My son will tell you, we will go on the jewelry networks and just watch them sell topaz rings to older people scattered throughout the country. And, and you're just like, I love it. I'm just, I'm so fascinated. And that's no insult to older people, by the way. Topaz is wonderful. I'm just saying, it's fascinating. Don't yell at me, Ellen. <coughs> it's fascinating that infomercials can take half an hour of your life. And at the beginning... You look at what they're selling, you're like, I could never use that. And at the end, if you stick it out, you can think of all the ways in which that would come in handy. And there was one time, one time, I hate to confess it, but I was lured in by the promise of the ab king. Okay? <laughs> the ab king is a belt that you wear that has electrodes. And it's supposed to provide a gentle shock to your abdomen so it can stricts your muscles so it's like working out without doing anything. And if that's not America in one sentence, I'm in. And so I'm sitting there with my sweet wife, and you can imagine why this was appealing to me. And I said, darling, the ab king is for us. And so we waited like the guy from Christmas Story every day looking for the ab king in the, in the mailbox. And it gets there, and I put that thing on. It was like a championship belt. And I'm like, I am now the ab king. And, and this buried six-pack, it's going gonna, it's gonna to show itself in a matter of days, most likely. And so I turned that sucker on, and they had a couple of settings. And I'm like, well, I'm going high. My abs can take this. And the problem, of course, was that half, half of it didn't work. But the half that did, it doubled the voltage, it felt like. And so instead of a gentle, it was like somebody took a, a fireplace poker that was red hot and just jabbed it in my stomach. And so instead of a tightening of the abs, there were convulsions in which I would bend over. And for the sake of my six pack, I engaged with this for two minutes probably, and then threw it away, disappointed and disillusioned that advertising isn't always true. <laughs> and as I've grown older and hopefully more wise, I've, I've seen how often we take our Jesus and turn him into a product just like the Ab King. And that church just becomes an infomercial for following Jesus. And there's, your life is incomplete. There's a hole in your heart. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll won't fill it. But Jesus will come in and fill it and make your life great. And then I read the Bible. And I realize, no, he's a very disruptive presence. And that the people who were used greatly by him often paid a price for that usefulness. That Jesus was far more interested in working among the unspectacular and the behind the scenes than he was the triumphant and the glorious. 
And yet, even the way we tell the story promotes a vision of Jesus' invasion in the world, of just something that's so peaceful and silent. And you're like, man, that is not what's happening. This is an invasion. And it comes in the midst of great sorrow and shame for those who are participating in it. And if you're going to do an infomercial for Jesus, you're not going to use our football players or our rock stars. Like, let's tell Mary's story. Hey, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And then look at the cost of her yes. Or tell Peter's story or Paul's story. Peter, Paul, and Mary would make a great... It's an old, man, that is, you've got to be old to understand that was a band back in the day. We're the people that order topaz. The people that know that reference love topaz. It's just a, a rule. Good Lord. Kids, I just want to apologize. The regular preacher will be back next week at 10 o'clock. All right? It'll be much better, I promise you. So on the one hand, we, have a, we, we encounter a story. One of the five women mentioned in lineage of Jesus, lineage of Jesus who on our own confession has just been polished and brightened up so that it, it's, this, it's this triumphant and beautiful story when in actuality the promise of Christ came with the promise of sorrow. And so there's a sense in which, my friends, this just, it stands out again that this isn't always the happiest time of year for everybody. That grief is welcome. And lament is welcome. And this holiday cheer thing we're supposedly supposed to feel, it's okay if you don't feel it. It's okay if there's a missing seat at your table and you just can't get over that. It's okay if it's been a really crappy year. It's okay. So we want to de-Americanize this story and realize, oh, okay, a, 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 an appropriate response to the good news of the coming of Christ is grief and sorrow. That's okay. And buried here too is something that we see over and over. And it's so obvious and apparent that I think it just kind of, at least for me, it just sort of goes over my head. But who does God use here? He entrusted the savior of the universe to a first time teenage mother. My daughter's 16, and she is talented and capable. But if I were going to entrust the Savior of the universe, I mean, I'm not going to finish that sentence, all right? Because I'm going to go home with her later, and I don't want to be thrown off a cliff. But my point is, my point is to a teenage mom, the Savior of the universe is given. And you're like, What? Poor, scandalous circumstances. And then you compare. So Zechariah got a, a sweet angel visit too, right? So he's a man, she's a woman. He's old, she's young. He's a, from, from a priestly family, she's a nobody. He's in the temple, she's at her house. He's in Jerusalem, she's in Nazareth. God opposes the proud and graces the humble. And so there's this constant refrain. I mean, think of, think of all the big names we encounter in the Christmas story. Caesar, Augustus, Quirinius, the regional official, Pilate, Herod, 
But God doesn't do any of his best work there. It's those teenagers and the shepherds who we're going to meet Christmas Eve. So there's an invitation here for us. The, the first part of the invitation is to recognize the Christmas story, of course, is much messier than how we read it and understand it. And it does reflect the consumer heart of all of us to one of Jesus that just provides peace, comfort, and security, who never disrupts us, who never invites us into humbling circumstances. And we just realize, okay, well, that's, that's really not the story we're being told. And beyond that, we're invited to feel however we're feeling. That sorrow is totally welcome and totally fine. Lament. There's no forced Christmas spirit we have to somehow get into. But thirdly, where do we find Jesus at work? We find him among the forgotten, the lost, the common, the ordinary, the unspectacular. And what we learn from the story most of all is that there are no nobodies in the kingdom. And one of the most important things we do as a community is we take all of those who are declared nobody out in the world and we lift them up and esteem them. And so we sit in, you know, as Ethan was praying earlier, just the craziness of the year, but of this year, and my goodness, it's difficult. So we just want to pause a moment and we want to worship and realign and reimagine what God's up to in the world and who he esteems and what it means to be highly favored. So publicly we worship by and through singing, of course, but we have these stations around the room that you're invited to. And there, there are uh, pieces of communion. There's bread that you can dip into a cup or there are little communion cups that you can take. And communion for us is the most important thing that we do together because it is literally the announcement of God invading planet Earth in flesh and blood. And it's also the recognition that that comes at cost. And so for some of us to just reflect back on the cost of our yes, right? Because following Jesus isn't always glorious and glamorous and triumphant. Sometimes it's really hard and sometimes he's really disruptive. And of course, there's a greater cost to not, right? I mean, there's a cost to forgiveness, but there's a much greater cost to bitterness and resentment. There's a cost to generosity, but there's a much bigger cost to greed. Right? There's a cost to humility, but a much greater cost to pride. And so, yes, we say yes to this way, but we also recognize that sometimes it is the way of sorrow and disappointment. There are also places for people, particularly if you're, if you're grieving or something's heavy, we just want to invite you. There are sheets of paper around at these stations. And we just invite you to write either a prayer to God directly or something that we can be praying for. Um, we really esteem the sheets that we get because they represent incredible heartbreak at times, incredible rejoicing at times, honesty always. And I just want to invite you, if, if, you're in a, if you're in a hard spot, let us be with you in it, at least in this way. And so would you write something down and fold it up and put it in the holes that are drilled into the wood? I want to invite the team up. I'm going to pray, and then we'll just have some space to sort of reflect and respond. Kids, kids, you made it.
well done, well done. They were like, hmm? Ethan, thank you. I love you. So Lord Jesus, um, we just want to bless you and we want to receive you afresh this morning. We want to say yes to this invitation that you've given to us. We love the fact that you are looking always for participants in the work in, of your work in the world. And so we say yes, absolutely. But we also recognize there's cost to that yes, that it is worth it. And yet you are so um, uh, surprising in the way that you move. We recognize, God, that um, our yes just includes the permission to work as you will. And Father, we uh, receive the bread and the cup today out of, of thankfulness and recognition of the work that you've done on our behalf. And God, again, we desire to see your name made great and your presence manifested concretely through this community. In the name of our Christ, amen.